0: The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I was, I was going through my iPhone yesterday and I saw that I have William Shatner's email address. Which one do you have? Uh, let me see which one I've got. Um, it's a really short one. It's a weird one. I didn't recognize it. It's uh, bill at Com?
2: Oh, that's a different one. I don't even have that one. His his uh, pers- It's not his personal one, though. I've got that one.
1: Oh, it, it's, it's just a, a parked domain. So may- maybe you've got his personal email address, but this is his secret email address.
2: Oh, I have his secret email address.
1: Oh, well, all right then. Here we
0: go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on Shortwave Radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth featuring musical guest Sting. Technology of the future today. We'll look at what
2: science fiction predicted and what we actually got including an advance in your
1: wallet that dates
2: back to the year 1888. Georgia Tech professor and sci-fi author Lisa Yazik joins us to discuss the history of the future and the role female authors have played in shaping the 21st century. Plus, more details on
1: our live on Facebook live show. And now, Alan Cross
2: and Michael Hainsworth. So what do you have on you? I have a rum punch that is made with amber rum, Malibu rum, a little bit of, um, what is that? Mayor. Yeah. What's that liqueur that I put in the, Brandy. uh... What is it? Grenadine? No, it's not Grenadine. No, the, the, uh, the liqueur, the, uh, it's got the square, square bottle. I can't remember. Hang on. <laughs> you got to ask the bartender. No, I just don't re- <laughs> remember what I put in my drink. <laughs> but I think amaretto. I think he's taken a page ah, from me. No, amaretto. A couple of weeks, a couple of weeks back,
1: I did the white trash rum punch which, of course, is Malibu rum in one of your children's Five Alive drink boxes. Oh,
3: nice. Is this why
1: you're
2: hooked on this now? No, but you got me thinking about it. So here we go. Amber rum, Malibu rum, amaretto, uh, two parts orange juice, one part pineapple juice, and a dash of grenadine with lots of ice. Stir nicely and drink. As you know,
1: I have only one go-to drink and that is the very dry, very dirty vodka martini. So dirty that after I drink it, I need to take an antibiotic. Lisa, what are you working on?
3: I have a pint of the Hemperer HPA from New Belgium Brewing. Oh, yes. I didn't know you were so hip. I know. An HPA. An HPA. I know. Right? Exactly. What's the difference
1: between an HPA and an IPA?
3: Well, an HPA is... One letter. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's a hemp pale ale. So it's uh, brewed with both hemp and hops. And it's actually apparently been banned in the state of Kansas. For what
2: reason? Why? So you're going to get
1: drunk and high as fuck.
3: I guess that's what they're they're worried about for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) The rest of the country, though, doesn't care. It's only Kansas where they're that worried about our, our health. I appreciate their concern.
2: Yeah, well, they teach creationism in Kansas. So what do you expect?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So science fiction technology today that, you know, we were... I've I've railed about this before. You know this. When we were kids, we were promised jet packs, flying cars, and food in pill form. And the food in pill form is the only one that I'm truly disappointed I never got. But, you know, my daughter now has an iPhone. And I remember at age 12, All I wanted in the world was a computer that ran at 4.77 megahertz (laughs) and now she's got one that she sticks in her purse that is more powerful than, as we've all heard before, what it took to get man to the moon by a factor of 100,000. What's the big gadget that you've got in your life right now that still blows your mind?
2: The Universal Translator that uh, Google has come up with. Google Translate is absolutely fantastic. We were in Vietnam last December.
1: Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test.
2: This is rock and roll. in the north part of Vietnam is getting wine by the glass oddly enough so we had a language barrier when it came to asking the server in our restaurants do you have wine by the glass and they had no idea what we were saying and we just couldn't get the message across we couldn't ask the question properly so I whipped out Google Assistant and we had a very slow but very accurate two-way conversation, English to Vietnamese, Vietnamese to English, about what kinds of wine a restaurant may have by the glass. So it's it's the, the babblefish it's the universal translator. I, I, I think that's fantastic.
1: The, the fish is the one that always gets me from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. With that in mind, joining us now is Georgia Tech professor and the author of an upcoming anthology on female sci-fi authors titled The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women from Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Lagoon. It hits Amazon in September. Lisa Yazik joins us from Atlanta. Lisa, good to have you with us.
3: It's so great to be here today. Thanks. You
1: know, the the babble fish, I suppose, is probably the holy grail of science fiction technology today.
3: Yeah, I guess that it is. Although the nice thing, right, with the Google Universal Translator is you don't have to put it in your ear. So I think there's, a, it may have been a slow conversation, but probably a lot less physical discomfort than you might have had otherwise.
2: And it's not squishy. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a bit gross sticking a, a fish into your ear and having it kind of wriggle around in there. No, usually you would have that removed very quickly. What science fiction
1: technology do you look at every day and go, wow, when I was a kid, it would have blown my mind had I known that I could hold this in my hand or use this thing?
3: You know, it still has to be, it's got to be cell phones. So you can just do so darn much with your cell phone. Um, and it's, for instance, as, as a scholar, it's changed my life. Really I used to go into archives and you would take forever to very slowly go through old magazines and books and have to take careful notes by pencil with wear white gloves. And now you can go in and photograph everything and archive it and organize it and send it to people. And uh, it's been really great for that. And then. At the same time, I can have my kid do, like, kung fu moves and send it as a little video to my parents, right? (laughs) So sort of get to cover, like, uh, the personal and the professional life all at once. And, you know, it's just something—now, cell phones, that's something that, right, Star Trek sort of thought about with communicators, but the rest of science fiction really didn't get until much later.
2: I bought my very first cell phone, which was a Motorola Flip, one of those big triangular shaped things. Was it a StarTac? It was a StarTac. I still have it and i bought it because it looked like a star trek communicator you can buy a star trek communicator now that's bluetooth well i know but this this thing was was would actually work and it was on the old analog system and had this giant battery that would last forever, and all you could do is make and receive phone calls. For
1: $149.99, ThinkGeek will sell you a Star Trek original series Bluetooth communicator that pairs with your phone and has the flip up. It has all of the sounds associated with it as well. Wouldn't you rather keep your phone in your pocket or your briefcase and pull one
2: of these bad boys out in a meeting? Um, Are you asking me this? No. Do I want to be, how badly do I want to get beaten up? I think that's the answer.
1: Oh, come on.
2: <laughs> no, no. If I'm in a serious business meeting and I whip out a Star Trek communicator circa 1966, no, I deserve a beating.
3: Ah, uh, See, I feel like if I did that at a place like Georgia Tech, I'd get all kinds of props for that.
2: Yeah, but you're you're in, you're in a much cooler place.
3: I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. It sounds rough out there in the world of radio. <laughs> it is. Brutal. I had no idea.
1: This is actually an officially licensed Star Trek piece of merchandise. Um, it does have the authentic flip to answer feature in a wireless range of 32 feet. So you could probably have a good running start on the people trying to chase you down to beat you up.
2: <laughs> yeah, You're probably right. <laughs> but no, I, I don't need one of these things. I've been in, in Shatner's office. I've been in, in L.A. He's got an office off um, Venture Boulevard. And you walk into the place and it's loaded with this Star Trek memorabilia. and uh, Mostly because when they killed the show they just said hey you want it basically that's that's what it was he's got like a real phaser he's got a real communicator he's got a real tricorder you know all these things for the show and it's really really kind of cool um i would suggest that the tricorder is something that we are very close to having i mean that's what i refer to my ipad as because with a couple of dongles and a couple of apps you know i could do just about everything that dr mccoy could or or mr dr spock or mr spock could do with with his they're
1: working on the the real world tricorder and they're fairly close to it right now. Extreme Tech says that the two and a half million dollar first prize on the Gene Roddenberry scale, the Tricorder X prize, went to a company named Final Frontier Medical Devices, which is a diagnostic device, but To your point, it looks a lot more like an iPhone than it does something that uh, Mr.
2: Spock would be holding. Well, let's just remember what the budget was for props back in 1966. They had zero dollars.
1: Leonard Nimoy did not know how to hold the tricorder in the early episodes, and if you watch the show, you can see the bloopers. I've never thought about that, but I'm going to have to look. Yeah. Huh. Apparently, you know, he's just an actor. He's not a Star Trek nerd, because Star Trek was brand new at that point. Right. He had no idea how to hold the thing, and if you look at early episodes, he's holding it upside down.
3: <laughs> okay. Oh, that's so funny. i we'll to watch that.
1: And, and yep. with that in mind, because I'm trying to indoctrinate the little one into all things science fiction, I sat her down for a daddy-daughter movie night. And the deal is, is, is because she's 12 now, but even when she was younger, You would tell her what the movie was going to be and she'd say, I don't want to watch that, even though she had no idea what it was she was turning her nose up at. So the deal now is, I don't tell her what the movie is, and she must buy, she is required to sit through the first ten minutes. She can leave after the first ten minutes, but guaranteed she is never going to leave after the first ten minutes of any daddy-daughter movie. And the most recent one was Galaxy Quest. Oh, how can you not like that movie? Exactly! I finally took her to a, uh, a one of those Comic-Con type conventions to go to Fan Expo in Toronto a couple of years back. So she understands Star Trek because of her experience when we binge watched Voyager and of course the fan experience as well. So that movie is just a perfect amalgamation of those two experiences.
2: I, I love the aliens. They kind of sing like this when they talk. That's a, it's a really good film. And, and Sigourney Weeder and, and uh, what's his name, Tim Allen, are, are excellent in that film. And Alan Rickman, too.
1: By Grabthar's
2: Hammer. What a savings.
3: I heard they're making a sequel to Galaxy Quest. What?
2: I heard that, too. Yes, and I would love to see it. Well, yes. Alan Rickman won't be there.
1: but I
3: know, no Alan Rickman. Yeah, of course, but... I had read that
2: because he had died, that put the Kai Bosch on a sequel. Really? No, well, okay, don't be that way. We're, you know, Lisa and I are having fun with this. (laughs) You just destroyed it all. I
3: I want the sequel. Yeah, exactly. If we're going to get a Blade Runner sequel, why not have like, you know, a Galaxy Quest sequel? I I, I said, do it all if you're going to do it.
1: Well, okay, so November 15th, 2017, Collider reported that Amazon's Galaxy Quest will mix old and new cast, explore changes in fandom. But Alan Rickman Died in January of 2016. So if they're reporting on this in 2017, I guess it is still a go. Good. My favorite character in that entire film, though, had to be Tony Shaloub, as mm. precisely the opposite of a high energy, panicky Scotty.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so you guys came. Who wants the grand tour? Mm. That was a hell of a
0: What's
2: wrong with them? I don't know. Come on. It was a very good film. My, my wife and I watch it whenever it comes on TV. There there are two science fiction movies that we watch every single time, no matter what else we're doing. The first one is, uh, is Galaxy Quest. The second one is Starship Troopers, because that's such a terrible movie that we just can't. It's like a car crash that gives and gives and gives. So we will watch that to the end.
1: It gave us one of my favorite memes, which is nuke it from orbit it's the only way to be sure
2: (laughs) (laughs) terrible can we go back to some other pieces of uh science fiction that have come true like the artificial intelligence assistant
3: yeah i was gonna say that's another one star trek got right right yeah
1: The idea that I can actually just shout at my little glowing rectangle to do something and it does it. My daughter, and to bring it all back to her because she's my whole world right now, is um, I got one of those Amazon Alexas and I had a bunch of home automation technology that I tried out that I didn't end up keeping installed in the house. So I installed it in her room. So she's the only 12-year-old in her class who gets to go to bed every day and say, computer, computer. Lights off,
2: <laughs> and her whole bedroom goes. I've got uh, both uh, Google Home, like one, two, three, one, two, five Google Home devices, and two Alexa devices. Putin must love you. Oh, I know. My well, my house is practically sentient, so I can <laughs> I can tell my house to do anything, and it does. So we were making ribs on the barbecue, and I said, uh, Alexa. Uh, play rock music from 1978 on the patio, and it an interfaced with my Sonos system, and boom, there was music from 1978 on the patio. It was great.
1: So, as you point out, Star Trek got the AI assistant right too.
3: But you know, here's the one thing it didn't get right. I, I don't know about you, but we've got um, a, we've got Siri and Alexa, and I find they have they're a little hard of hearing. You know, the thing in Star Trek is every time you ask the computer or the ship to do something, it gets it right right away. We ask Siri to do something, it it right? maybe, maybe not.
1: Exactly. Not only does it get it right every time, but then you can ask it follow-up questions without the trigger word, and it seems to understand, whereas our exactly. devices today, you have to continually remind it you're talking to it.
3: I actually find mine does the opposite. It Siri, my son's name is Case, and for some reason, whenever we say Case, Siri answers us, and we, we don't know if it's jealous or <laughs> if it's trying to horn in on the attention or what, but it's a little disturbing, actually, because you just can't have a normal conversation without it just jumping in randomly usually to recommend a restaurant like 500 miles away
2: interesting that you use the pronoun it rather than she
3: i set my all of my devices to male voices or okay he or or so maybe they yeah 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 that's interesting when i can some of them can't be yeah i do
1: Every once in a while, I set my Siri to an Australian male accent. Mm -hmm. And when somebody hears it, they're remarkably surprised, first of all, that the iPhone's capable of having a male persona. Yes. And second, that a man chose a male persona. As someone who's written so much about women's participation in the field of science fiction writing. I wonder what that says, that people are surprised that a man chooses a male voice, but not surprised when a woman chooses a male voice.
3: Actually, people are surprised when I choose the male voice, too. I think most people don't even realize that's an option. Um, I'm always surprised how much people don't go in and play with their settings on their devices to sort of see what they can do. Mm. But you can Um, I love it. I I use Waze for my GPS, and I've got it set to be a boy band, and everyone's (laughs) like, that's so horrible. But let me tell you, if you're driving and something bad is happening, you hear that boy band voice, you pay attention. So, you know, I I like the guy voices. They're weird. I have
1: no idea what you're talking about. You can configure Waze to be not only male, but
3: a boy band? Yes, Yes, you can.
1: Wait a
2: second, yeah, man, real
3: quick. <laughs> Everybody, grab, Wait, your grab your phone. Grab your phone. See on. the things you don't know necessarily about your your personal assistance. Do you think it's because it's on
2: this pause thing? a quarter of a mile,
0: keep bled. <laughs> Is that? Keep <laughs> bled.
3: See, and that's how we know they're getting to be human. They have all kinds of things we don't know about them.
1: I'm going to take issue with your <laughs> point that uh, about Star Trek and artificial sure. intelligence assistance. Mm-hmm. Because I suppose we really ought to give credit to Stanley Kubrick with that, with 2001, A Space Odyssey, with how?
3: Well, I wouldn't say Hal's a very good assistant.
1: No, but that was the premise behind the Nine Thousand series. No, it's a bit—he's <laughs> a bit homicidal. Right. <laughs> but only yeah. this one.
3: Well, well, or is he programmed that way? You know, we never really know for sure. So. Got to ask
2: Dr. Chandra about
1: that mm-hmm. one.
3: Exactly. I actually, to that to that point, do either of you?
1: Does anyone really know what the end of Two Thousand and One: Space Odyssey
2: was supposed to mean? Okay, so you saw that Stanley Kubrick post of uh, the past week? I did. Yes, I did know all that. Did,
1: oh wait, don't give me this shit. You're telling me that when you watched 2001: A Space Odyssey at the very end you went, "Oh, yeah, absolutely. Aliens grabbed him in the event horizon and they uh, put him in a little human zoo and they watched him grow to death and then when he died, they made him reborn and put him back on Earth as a super god." You honestly saw that? Yes.
2: I saw the movie for the first time with its 1972 reissue. I went with my dad. I was very confused about it. So we had a very long conversation about it. And then I talked to a number of other science fiction geeks and we came to this conclusion that yes, he was kidnapped by aliens. He was put into a zoo and then uh, time passed very quickly and he was sent back to earth as the star child, some kind of super evolved human being to do something with planet earth.
1: Lisa, do you buy any of this?
3: Yeah, I actually got most of that out of it as well. Um, Although, you know, everyone talks about it as a zoo. It feels more to me like an intergalactic Howard Johnson or something, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, guess it's a zoo. Um, And, you know, you think about Kurt Vonnegut's writing stories about humans being kidnapped by aliens and exhibited at zoos at this time. So I, I buy it. Yeah, I think it feels like the moment. Feels right.
1: All right. So I have one science fiction advance that was predicted that I can't possibly imagine Anybody is going to figure out, although, Lisa, with your history and your background as a as an author, you might appreciate this. In 1888, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward predicted credit cards.
3: I knew that you did. Yes. And I can even help nuance this for you. He actually didn't predict credit cards. He predicted the debit card because he imagined everyone would get a set salary each year and you would use your card to draw on your salary.
1: Eliminating the need for physical money.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened, though, were the guys who had started Sears and Roebuck had read that book and they were so excited about it, they took the idea of the debit card and turned it into the real credit card that we have today.
1: Right. It wasn't until 1950 that we really got the first true credit card. That was Diners Club too, wasn't it?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It was. So Lisa, what are you working on for September when we actually get to go to the bookstore virtually or otherwise, and pick up your latest work.
3: So The Futurist Female is uh, a book that's put out by Library of America. And if you don't know them, they're the people who sort of decide what's going to count as great American literature. And in the last few years, they've decided that science fiction is part of America's literary heritage. So um, I'm putting together a book uh, for them on the classics of early women's science fiction. Like We all know today that women read and write and participate in science fiction, but a lot of people think that women didn't really get involved with the genre. Well, you had Mary Shelley back in 1818, right. and then it looked like there was a long desert wasteland up until about the 60s or 70s when um, the revival of feminism brought attention to a lot of women writers like Ursula K. Le Guin and Joanna Russ um, and Margaret Atwood, uh, who you know, whose Handmaid's Tale is, of course, running on Hulu right now still. So... Um, and of course, I, I'd always been sort of interested in whether or not that was true. And it turns out that when you go back and look at the magazines, there were plenty of women publishing all along and they were publishing under their own names. And people really sometimes really liked their fiction. Sometimes they really hated it and would have fist fights about it. Very exciting. And uh, I really wanted to capture that for people. We We all like science fiction so much and everyone's always like, ooh, I want to find more of this. So... Um, I really wanted to work with Library of America to bring back this tradition that had been um, really central and important to the development of science fiction and and show you that the ladies have been there all along.
2: Were there any female science fiction writers that wrote under pseudonyms or male names to escape the sexism that came with that sort of writing?
3: Yeah, you know, see that there were a few there were fewer women than you think writing under pseudonyms. Most were actually publishing under their own names, but there were a few really famous examples um, and what's interesting, in each case, we now know that they didn't take on the pseudonym because of, because of science fiction, but for other reasons. So, for instance, um, the really famous one people often talk about is Catherine Lucille Moore, who went by C.L. Moore. She was a writer in the 30s and 40s and really made weird fiction very popular. She also wrote some of the first uh, cyborg stories. And everyone always says, oh, well, C.L. Moore, she couldn't publish under her own name, so she had to take on an androgynous, you know, uh, not pseudonym in her case, but to use her initials. And it turns out the reason that she did that was because she worked at a bank during the Great Depression, and if the bank had found out she had a second job, she, they would have fired her and given her a job to someone who didn't have a job. So this was her way of keeping her writing career and her day job. And we find that in a lot of cases, that's actually what women were doing, was they were taking those pseudonyms because they had day jobs elsewhere. So um, more recently, James Tiptree Jr., she was a writer who was very popular in the 70s, and everyone had celebrated what a wonderful feminist man James Tiptree was. And, of course, James Tiptree turned out to be a woman woman. But Tiptree had been a CIA agent, and she was a psychologist as well, and she needed to take on a pseudonym to keep her academic career separate from her writing career. And um, her name was based on she'd picked up a jar of marmalade at, at a grocery store and, and used that as her name. So um, sometimes, yeah, women took on men's names, but it was not as much because, oh, it's a man's world um, as, as for other reasons if that makes sense? Maybe because the whole world is a man's world, not just science fiction. How about that?
1: Well, with that in mind then, do you see a distinct difference in perspective between female writers and male writers when we think about the nature of the future? Is is the dystopian genre primarily a male thing or a female thing is there something that you can say women have a different perspective when it comes to the work they write
3: you know um not 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 dystopia or utopia both men and women can imagine really awesome and really horrible futures that's that's for sure um and and they do it in spades um but i do think what you used to see is that women initially and especially in the time period i'm looking at this book they'd write about all the same things as men And they would write about family and home. And that was something men weren't really writing about. Um, And I think that's because when we think about science and technology, we think about the big, sexy, exotic things like spaceships and alien life and fancy laboratories. Right. So these big, exciting, sexy things. But the reality is that's not actually how most of us experience the future. Right. We experience the future at home by interacting with Siri. Right. Or um, by using even something as simple as running water and toilets. That was all pretty high tech when science fiction got its start in the 1920s. And um, what you'd see is women were often saying, you know, it's not just that we're going to build these spaceships, but that we're going to develop food pills, for instance, um, so that we will have something to eat as we're on our way to other planets. Oh, um,
1: so we have women to blame for me being promised the yes. food pill and never got. Oh, gosh.
3: Yes. Well, I can imagine back in the day when you were doing 16 hours a day of chopping wood and carrying water, a food pill must have seemed like utopia. To this
1: day, it's a huge waste of time eating as far as I'm concerned. Oh, please. I've been out to dinner with
2: Michael. It is the dullest thing ever because he sits there picking at his appetizer while the rest of us are are enjoying our, our food.
3: Uh, so just, you must not have liked The Martian very much because that was only about eating. Well, it was about eating and, and elimination. It was about food going in and out.
1: Actually. Yeah, exactly. It was all about survival. But <laughs> yeah. no, as far as I'm concerned, it's a supreme waste of time. If it takes an hour between preparation and eating or an hour and a half, whatever it takes. You know, granted, for me, it's more like 15 minutes because it's a five minute microwave job and a 20 minute eating job. Don't you think we would be far more productive if we didn't have to stop what we were doing three times a day? How much more productive do you want
3: to be?
2: And do you do want to do nothing but work?
3: Yeah. I mean, part of right food preparation can also be art and it's a communal activity or it can be a solitary uh, activity. Here we right? go back I mean, into
1: the Anthony Bourdain episode.
3: Oh, no. Well, I don't mean to channel him, but I guess if that's what's <laughs> happening, that's what's happening. But, you know, I mean, it seems to me there's an art and a science to cooking as well. And, and that that stuff is important. And. It's actually something I'm seeing a lot in contemporary science fiction, people really thinking about food all of a sudden.
1: Okay. So if I have female... No food pills,
3: though. I've got to tell you, people are eating food food in the future.
1: If I have female sci-fi authors to blame for being promised food in pill form, mm-hmm. who do I address my complaint that we didn't get the jet pack?
3: You know, I'm trying to figure that out. Who was the jet pack? No, who promised us the jet packs? What the about Jetses? the flying car? Maybe, uh, you know.
2: Well, that was the Jetsons.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, and there are old science fiction magazine covers, some of the oldest ones. In fact, there's one from the 20s where you got a guy with a jet pack on the front and... uh his wife's standing outside the house waving goodbye. I guess he's going to work. I think she's got his briefcase. So, Obviously, yes. So I guess, yeah, we got to blame the old authors for those jetpacks. But, you know, it would probably just burn your feet anyway.
1: Lisa Yazik is a Georgia tech professor and the author of the upcoming anthology on female sci-fi authors titled The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women from Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin. It hits Amazon in September. Lisa, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me on the show, guys.
0: London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update.
1: I am so jazzed and we're still like more than a month away.
2: Oh, yeah. Are you talking about
1: the the live video show? The live on Facebook live on Michael's back deck show show. that's what I've decided we're naming it did I put this in my calendar Yes, Sunday, Hi. August 26th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you go to geeksandbeats.com slash live, we'll, we'll actually um, give you the ability to add it directly to your calendar from that web page. Or if you're not dialed into your iPhone-type world and all that kind of stuff, just give us your email address, and we'll make sure that we email you a reminder that the big show is going to be live on my back deck. Um, I've we've, we've got a bunch of guests already booked. I'm not We haven't nailed all of them down yet, so we're going to wait until we get into that. But some of them are... Um, um, locked in already and are, I'm very excited that they're going to be back. We've had them before. Uh, people love to have them on the, on the big show. And uh, I think we're going to do this in a Johnny Carson uh, Tonight Show style format. What do you think?
2: I think that would be fine. We uh, Do we need two desks or are we going to have our guest between us?
1: We, we are going to have two chairs for uh-huh. the co-hosts, and then we're going to have a couch for the guests. Okay, good. And then after guest one, we'll do a little thing, and guest two will come on. And the guest one will just sort of shift down the the, uh, the couch, just like they would have on that late night talk show. And uh, from there, we have a, a, a grand time. We, we actually even have a local celebrity chef dialed in on this as well. Chef Mike Benninger is going to join us. So we're going to be catered? It, Kate I don't he hasn't told us what it is yet he's going to make I told him that the only criteria that he had to have was one it needed to be something he could cook within an hour because that's a 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. show mm-hmm. and
2: two it had to be visually appealing because well, it's it's video he'll do something I'm not worried and how, are we gonna have a stand-up that we can invite over to the couch after they do their thing
1: oh golly I hadn't thought of that we need a stand-up comedian I don't—most I don't, of these shows have either a stand-up comedian or a celebrity chef. I don't think they have both on one show.
2: No, which is all the more reason why we should
1: have one. Okay, all let's right. See, well, let's see what we can do.
2: Let's okay. see what we can do.
1: Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to have to drop a metric ass load of money on renting hardware for this. You know that, right? Yeah, I do. So the, the podcast coffers are going to go back to zero pretty much by the time we're done with
2: this. Right. I know.
1: That's what I was afraid of. And, and, and so then I'm trying to figure out, do we do the show as kind of a, uh, a PBS-style telethon <laughs> <laughs> where we beg people for money?
2: Well, if we had the appropriate amount of equipment, maybe we could run like a 1-800 number across the lower third. <laughs> And, and do it like
1: a toll-free number. Yeah, we and can we can pledge. have the
2: wives. You know, the wives will be coming. We can have we can have them manning the phones.
1: Geeks and Beats head carpenter Dan Lynch of Handmade Kitchens just landed in Barcelona uh, and discovered that Portugal the man is playing 500 meters from his hotel. Um, he emailed this to you, and I think the thing that upsets me the most about him missing Portugal the man, or, or for that matter, the Foo Fighters in Toronto three days ago, thanks to those damn ticket resellers, uh, is that he did not pack... His miracle travel mug of traveling.
2: Yes, that is a an error.
1: <laughs> you you didn't even know we had a head carpenter. I had no idea. And and we talked about this two seasons ago. Well, like I would remember that. And the gist was, as you said, you need new cabinets. I need some bookcases. That's what it was. Something tells me kitchen cabinets and bookcases, similar but not quite the same thing. It's yes, one has plates, one has books. But they also have doors, and they have different fine, types of- whatever. Right, fine. <laughs> well, I don't know. Get him over to the house. Uh,
2: maybe. I don't maybe, know. Maybe we'll do a live show with him building your house. Oh, I really need some bookcases in the, in the loft. You, but you don't, you don't ever come to my house because you're allergic to dogs, so you don't know what I'm talking about.
1: No, and no, I've been to your house once. Your, your basement is, is quite a remarkable experience, particularly with... All of those shelves covered with the original vinyl from the CFNY
2: Music Library. Yes, it is most outstanding.
1: E- every year, I drop a major hint that wouldn't it be amazing mm-hmm. if your birthday gift to me was the Cures Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss me on vinyl from that library. Oh, I'll I'll every go look. year, every I'll go year,
2: look. I'll go look. You go, Let's I'll th- go look. And then I you know, November comes along and nothing. I think you know, it'll it'll be it'll be a radio station play copy. It's not gonna be in very good shape. I don't care. I wanna put it in a frame. Oh really? Yes. All right, I'm what after do you mean, Oh really.
1: Oh hang on. The Wouldn't you be impressed with that? Sorry,
2: the dog is just walking away with my mouse. Hang on. There we go. Uh yeah yes, I'll be very impressed. Let me go see if I if I have it. In the
1: meantime, we want to say thank you to Dean Kelly, who's responsible for this entire nonsense today. Um, He is the co-producer of this week's show. He pledged $25 by going to geeksandbeats.com and click the support the show link. And via Patreon, he has pledged, um, which is great because Kevin Waghorn just deleted his $25 donation. So, Kevin, thank you very much for your generosity on the big show. And Dean, thank you for joining us and making this show episode possible.
2: And remember, we do need a little bit of operating capital so we can do this live show at the end of August. Without your support, this whole thing could crash and burn. 200 bucks. I'm amazed at how
1: inexpensive it is to rent five lavalier microphones and a mixing console. That's all? I'm doing the rest of the The video side of it is all being done on the iPhones I've
2: abandoned in my desk drawer. See, this program in itself is going to be instructive because it shows exactly how low the barrier to entry is into doing something like this. I Absolutely. Mean, if we talk about science fiction and things that have come true over the last 15, 20 years, I mean, how many beta cams would we have needed? How many people on the floor would we have needed? How many switchers would we have needed to make this possible? In 2000 or 2001.
1: Exactly. It would have taken an entire team of people. Uh, We will have a dedicated director for the show, which is great. A buddy of mine from TV Land is going to come in and help us out on this. I asked Andrew Stokely, longtime listener, big-time fan of the show. Oh, yeah. Andrew is an audio specialist for your Toronto Blue Jays, and unfortunately, there is a home game that night. so He's not going to be able to join us. So if, if you can't hear the audio, it's his fault. Got it. So we also want to say thank you to Craig Aitken, who's uh, going to help us make it possible to do the big live show. He is a member of the World's Worst Intern Program, pledging $1 an episode for the big show. Of course, that's what makes it the World's Worst Intern Program. You pay us to work on the show. You don't do any actual work. And all we do is say thank you and continue to pocket the change. What I don't know is whether or not Dean Kelly, with his $25 donation, put a lifetime limit. He didn't. Don't say We're going to pump him dry. Just don't say anything. We are going to pull all the money out of his pocket. Let it ride. Let it go. So here's the deal with the Patreon account is that if you set a lifetime limit of support, then every time we publish something up until that limit will ding you and then you won't get dinged after that. Dean, we are going to bleed you dry
2: (laughs) if you don't set a lifetime limit on it. I'm sure there's some kind of fraud involved in what we just did.
1: No, no, there is not fraud because I exactly explicitly told him to do it. But the here's here's the beauty is maybe Dean's two or three episodes behind on our back catalog, so maybe we get two or three episodes out of Dean. Okay, fine, that'd be great because we need the money for this thing. Just wait till the fraud squad shows up. <laughs> I know.
0: Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. Maybe you're the plucky comic relief. You ever think about that? Plucky. Oh, besides, I <laughs> just had this really interesting idea. Are you stunned? The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.